0: Welcome to the Digiday podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week we have a special episode for you and we will be looking ahead to 2020 and what it may have in store for the media world. Um, And to do so, I want to bring in a variety of our reporters to talk about this. First, we have Tim Peterson, our senior reporter, who is focused on the exploding world of streaming video services. That's everything from Netflix to Hulu to Disney Plus, Peacock, Quibi—you name it. Uh, Tim is usually holding down our San Diego outpost, but he was in town last week for our holiday party and some meetings, and we got to talk. All right, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having. This is your first ever. First. Okay. Are you nervous? A little bit. Okay. <laughs> It'll be fine. All right. So we're heading into 2020. Um, you know, you've been doing an amazing job. Um, uh, I'm in a biased way. I'll be saying this. On um, covering the rise of all these streaming platforms and what we sort of think of as the future of TV, I want to look forward to to 2020. But first, like, what what do you think? You know, 2019 was the year of, if you will.
1: It was a year of growth. Like, there was a lot of growth. Everyone obviously talks about the growth. A lot of people were moving into streaming. And I think that kind of sets up 2020 for that's when the growing pains are going to start.
0: But, like, what's, like... Give me specifics.
1: Well, so in the upfront this year with advertisers and the TV networks, digital played a bigger part in getting those budgets because in the past, digital had been an add-on for the networks. And they also the prices had been higher than, especially when it comes to like the cable networks, their digital inventory was priced a lot higher than their linear inventory. And so that had been a pain point. But now with linear viewership declining, they had to lower the prices to for the digital inventory in order to get the the bigger volume commitments
0: so it seems like when we're talking about the streaming wars and a lot of people talk about the streaming wars i mean we're actually talking about a bunch of different wars yeah right yeah this is like what is it the 13 years war i don't remember but there was there's a lot of different people fighting Mm -hmm. so how do you group them what i'm thinking about is like i'm thinking netflix is going up against disney Disney and hbo and and that is like this intergalactic battle Um, but then there are other battles going on.
1: Yeah, because then you have like the niche SVOD services and
0: SVOD. Come on, what okay. are we talking about?
1: Subscription streamers. <laughs> um, it, but then there's the free ad supported streaming TV services like the Pluto TVs, the Zumos, the Samsung TV Plus, Roku Channel, IMDb TV, and that's becoming more of a war because right now they're they all look the same. They all have the same old programming, the same, like, movies that you would normally watch on, like, yeah. a Sunday afternoon on cable TV.
0: And so, so when you're looking at 2020, are we looking at a typical, you know, middle market crunch? I mean, we're seeing this across pretty much every area we cover, even mm-hmm. across, you know, Glossy with fashion and beauty and um, in modern retail with, with retail. I mean, we're seeing the middle get crunched everywhere.
1: Yep, and that's going to happen. And folks are concerned about it, like... Uh, been meeting with TV network executives and also, you know, digital entertainment executives and they're concerned about it because they, they recognize that that's going to be the case that with connected TV, it's like mobile all over again for publishers where it doesn't really make sense for a lot of these companies to have their own connected TV apps because people aren't going to use them. They're going to stick with like a Netflix, a Disney, a YouTube, a Pluto, the aggregators. Right. And so there it's the bundle all over again.
0: Oh boy. Um, what about on the advertiser side? Um, I think we've, we've been doing a lot of coverage around, you know, some very core basic issues when it comes to connected TV advertising. Yep. Like, why the hell do I see the same ad repeatedly? Mm-hmm. And why can't? Um, and I thought you got into, like, a, a, a lot of the good details about why that is happening. What what kind of growing pains do you expect to see for the industry um, in 2020 when it comes to, to connected TV advertising?
1: I think growth is still an issue there when it comes to getting more ad dollars because there was um, someone at a holding company agency i was talking to who was saying that you don't have to spend as much when it comes to connected tv because you can be more targeted and because the ad loads are lighter too there just isn't as much inventory to be buying and so for anyone who's expecting tv dollars to shift entirely into digital that's not going to happen because they don't have to shift entirely you can actually save money if you're an advertiser
0: I mean, is it too simplistic to say that, I mean, there's so much of this viewing is going on um, that you don't, it, there's no advertising involved. Everyone wants subscriptions, right? Um, yeah, Hulu has a different model, but uh, Scott Galloway talks about, you know, advertising becoming a tax on the poor. Mm. Um, I, are we seeing this actually play out um, where there just isn't, places for this tv advertising to move to because so much of the streaming viewing is in a non-ad environment
1: yeah well you have i mean hulu the interesting thing with them is their limited commercial subscriptions here is their most popular tier Mm -hmm. and with like their sprint and their spotify deals they've been doing a lot to push subscribers specifically for that tier and so that serves as something of a model, but again, then, then it's an aggregator thing where people can sign up for Hulu because they'll get a bunch of different shows and movies that they can watch. For someone who's smaller publisher, I don't know if people are going to be as tolerant of that.
0: Okay. So final thing, um, we're working on all these bold calls um, going into 2020. These are not predictions, right? But um, give, us, uh, give us one of your bold calls.
1: I think the smart TV manufacturers will band together and try to negotiate harder, like carriage deals when it comes to connected TV with the different media companies.
0: Okay. So give me an example of that.
1: Um, Well, it's already the case in the cable market where you have like the regional cable providers who they negotiate together as a group. And I think the smart TV manufacturers are going to start doing that because you have Samsung already selling ads on its smart TV platform. Uh, now Vizio is starting to do the same. And I think more and more of them are seeing that there's an opportunity there because people don't buy TVs. They buy TVs like once every seven years or so. Yeah. And so these smart TV manufacturers have to figure out, okay, where can we get revenue in between uh, people buying new TVs?
0: Okay, cool. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Now we have Lara O'Reilly via Google Hangout from our London office. Lara joined us a few months ago to cover the big global stories in media. Lara and I talk about the outlook for the continued media consolidation next year and the fallout from the death of digital advertising's workhorse, the third party cookie. All right, Laura, welcome.
2: Thank you.
0: Let's talk. I mean one of the um, the big stories of this year and then going into next year is digital media consolidation. We saw a lot of a lot of big names come off the board this year. Um, the mega merger that uh, was mooted never never came to pass. but what are you expecting to see in 2020?
2: I th- yeah, I think you're right. Most of the mega deals appear to be done and 2020 will be a lot about those kind of big giants. So that, you know, the Disney and Foxes and Time Warner, AT&T, just kind of working through the integration of those acquisitions. As you say, we saw lots of the smaller digital players uh, uniting and we also saw some more kind of con- controversial deals. So things like Maven buying Sports Illustrated and laying off most of the team. We saw that happen with Bloomberg and City Lab, um, reportedly laying off some of the editorial stuff there too. So in terms of, of looking ahead, I think there's there's still lots of appetite out there. Um, people still need scale. People still need revenue diversification. So there's lots of appetite out there for uh, new, interesting digital media players. And we've heard people like Ziff Davis and Dot Dash openly say that they're hungry to make more transactions. And I think also what we're going to see is... Um, you're seeing lots of tech players move into different areas. So we saw things like Spotify acquiring Gimlet and Anchor earlier this year. Uh, we also saw people like Google moving into gaming with Stadia. And also everyone from Amazon to Apple has a TV strategy nowadays. So I think we're going to see lots of different types of deals. Uh, as you say, the big roll-up, the BuzzFeed, uh, Vice, Vox, Mega Merger that was posed never happened. I'm not sure whether that would I
0: don't know what you think Brian yeah I mean uh, I, I think the the big roll-up is probably not going to happen there's just too many interests at stake there I think the big unknown is uh, the economy I mean I think we're going into our third year in which um, top economists have predicted a recession so it's really hard exactly to know when this uh, recession is going to hit yeah. and at least in the US we're in I guess our 10th year of expansion Um But I think, you know, that was driving a lot of people wanting to, um, you know, to to get out uh, and to to prepare for uh, digital media has never been an easy business, but it's it's bound to get a lot more difficult when the economy inevitably um, uh, turns downward.
2: Definitely. And when you have a downturn, it usually follows that advertisers spend less. So, again, revenue diversification for those players is going to be key as those players look to rely a lot less on kind of pure play advertising revenue, I'd say.
0: One other big topic that I wanted to discuss with you is the scramble for identity. And by this, I mean the collapse of the third-party cookie. Um, And this is an area that we've been covering quite a bit. Um, And there's a lot that went on this year where, you know, regulation really bit into ad tracking. And we've got the California Consumer Privacy Act now coming up um, in just a couple of weeks.
2: Mm So, the more immediate thing has been the impact of the browsers turning the screws on digital tracking uh, and ad, ad tracking across different sites across the web. And we've seen in places like Germany the impact of Firefox turning on its tracker prevention feature and revenues just falling off a cliff because Firefox is really strong in Germany. Uh, obviously, with Safari and ITP, we've seen a huge impact there. So the value of the third-party cookie is being slowly depreciated across the web because of the browsers, I think, initially. And Mm -hmm. also, I think, uh, you know, Chrome is the biggest web browser out there. It's got about 60, 65% of the market. And most observers think that Chrome will eventually lean in a similar kind of direction as Safari and Firefox. Perhaps not quite as militant as Apple and, and Firefox have been about this, but... I think if you throw in.
0: Well, I mean, if I could jump in, Google does have a very large ad business.
2: Right. It, it does. But, you know, you've got to throw in the fact that the, um, the regulators are keeping a close eye on, on its business at, at the moment as well. And privacy is now a competitive stance. Um, what Apple does, Chrome has to, sh- has to slowly follow. Yes. But it does have these different, um, business interests. So as I say, I think Chrome will lean in the same direction. So give users more options on privacy if not kind of go the 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 kind of whole hog and and turn off tracking by default but i certainly think there's going to be mm-hmm. more moving in that direction but but yeah and you are right obviously in 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 europe we've had um gdpr but it does seem as though 2020 is really the year that we'll see uh the regulators um looking into more fines, essentially, we're, we're actually going to start seeing more enforcement. And the ICO in the UK has said it's going to update on uh, what, what it thinks about the open RTB market and whether that can be compliant with GDPR in its current form, probably not uh, on mm-hmm. December the 20th. Um, so, yeah, everything is is going towards the direction of the the cookie crumbling. Uh so with that in mind so you've got these this this kind of perfect storm of regulation and the browsers we've had a lot of publishers this year look at pursuing what their beyond the cookie strategies look like and essentially prioritizing identifying audiences using first party rather than third party cookies so they're using their own data uh, and the other thing that's mm-hmm. key here is having logged in users that uh, everyone said that when GDPR Came into force, and we'll you know we'll say with CCPA, there there is an an argument that if you're one of the walled garden players, you're in a stronger position because you're using your own first party data and with with which you can control in a in a better way. Um, so that's what the publishers are trying to do. Um, obviously, it's it's not as easy. You don't have as big audiences. You don't have the scale across the web. But um, obviously, if you can offer something in return, you know, membership it, it benefits and, and so on, then that, that encourages mm-hmm. more people. Uh, but you'll get-
0: never, I mean, publishers will never get to even close to even like 75% of their audience um, to register with them. No. So, I mean, I would guess, I mean, these things usually benefit incumbents, right?
2: Sure, and I mean, so one of the interesting things that I've been following recently in Europe is login alliances. So, um, we we've seen a lot over the years these kind of ad sales alliances. Now we're seeing it more with kind of data alliances between different publishers. So things like Ozone is one of the famous ones in in the UK. But what we're seeing in kind of small concentrated markets, so places like Finland, uh, and and Portugal. Um, we're seeing that some of the publishers uh, form these login alliances where they share a kind of single login across their different uh, websites. So it's not just an alliance on the advertising side; it's it's actually the the front facing consumer side. And there, obviously, it's really early days. It's difficult to do in kind of wider. Uh, you know, cross country markets or, or the English speaking markets, it's more difficult. But I think uh, as the year progresses, we're going to see more of these pop up. And we're, we're also going to find out whether these things work and what the advantages are. They're all kind of in their really early stages at the moment. But I think that's going to be one to watch.
0: Right. So uh, the final topic I wanted to discuss is ad tech's next act, if you will, um, because the ad tech industry was built on the third party cookie to a large extent. So we've seen a lot of shakeout in the sector. It continues. Um, what What do you think 2020 holds for ad tech?
2: Sure. I mean, it does feel like I, I cover ad tech MA quite closely and it does feel like Everybody's kind of up for sale at the moment. Um, you know, and what we were just saying, there's, there's a, there's a possible downturn coming. We've got, uh, in the, the regulation on its way and ad tech still isn't seen by investors as much of a sexy sector as it was a few years ago. So the VC dollars aren't flowing in. So I think we're going to see more ad tech exits. Um, the problem is the pool of buyers has shrunk and we're seeing a fair amount of fire sales. We're seeing chapter 11s in some cases. Um, and also we're seeing the unraveling of of some some big deals where perhaps they just some of these ad tech players weren't quite a fit for the 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 parent company um I mean one of the things to be said about ad tech though is that there are plenty of growing areas of media that increasingly rely on bidding technology and analytics and advertising exchanges and so on so if you think about Digital out of home, um, we've been talking about that becoming programmatic quite for quite a while. Uh, connected TV and advanced TV or addressable TV, whatever you want to call it. Uh, everybody is saying that dollars are flowing that way. Um, you need something to be able to connect that. Podcasts, in-car entertainment and so on. And, and I think it, people in, in ad tech are very entrepreneurial and creative. And it's going to be the ones that move quickly to effectively jump on those areas are going to be the ones that will succeed.
0: Yeah. It seems like the ones that can retrofit for, particularly for connected TV, I mean, that's, that's where the dollars are flowing. Um, all, all the stats show that. So, you know, right now the programmatic infrastructure, I, I feel like for, for streaming video is, is not obviously as advanced as, as it is for, um, display advertising. But, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine, uh, a lot of, a lot of businesses sticking to display as a, as a future-facing strategy.
2: Definitely. And I think there's just lots of problems, as you, as you mentioned, there's lots of problems to be solved within connected TV. So things like frequency and ad bombardment um, and just frankly kind of lag. So I think, uh, you know, there's, there's people that are going to be able to solve those problems are the ones that are going to be able to ultimately be successful next year and beyond.
0: Okay, Lara, thank you so much. Thank you. Before we get to our final segment, a quick break finally I spoke with publishing reporter Max Willens about the outlook in 2020 for publishers looking to diversify their businesses in particular with subscriptions Max welcome to the podcast thank you Brian we're wrapping up the year I think the big the big theme it seems like in in digital publishing this year was diversification um, this is the I'm the, nodding the pivot the pivot to paid really took <laughs> took hold this year and, and everyone's sort of running
3: away from ad revenue i Makes sense to run to where the uh, opportunity is. I would say um, y- you see a lot of media companies realize that they can't either they can't compete with Google and Facebook or they're competing for what's left after Google and Facebook have taken and Amazon too. And so, uh, increasingly, you've saw lots of publishers embrace uh, subscriptions, embrace uh, commerce, uh, events, brand licensing. I think commerce in particular has turned into a really major. Component of lots of big media companies, um, BuzzFeed now I think gets upwards of twenty to twenty five percent of their revenue it now comes from from commerce related stuff, and that's projected to grow uh, f- for the foreseeable future. They recently expanded their uh, market stuff globally; it's now available mm-hmm. in in the UK and Australia. When you say commerce,
0: are you talking about mostly affiliate? Because I think we need we need to sort of. But it's a, a fine point term. on this because um, you know there's one thing of, of writing a gift guide and linking out and, and using skim links and and taking a little cut off that. There's another thing about um, you know we're seeing media companies sort of become DTC brands themselves. I mean they're they're creating product and many there's a lot of different permutations of it. Some are even you know they got warehouses and they're holding product and they really act more like a, a DTC marketing company than than they do a. a a regular media company
3: that's exactly right i I think that in buzzfeed's case it is it's largely uh affiliate based but they they are looking at this as a a, something that they can play in in lots of different kinds of ways they've experimented with selling their own merch in the past um they're very openly thinking about you know kind of marketplace models places where opportunities where they can uh be the connective tissue and um you know allow uh buyers and and customers to uh, kind of meet in the middle a little, little bit. Um, but I think that you see also, yeah, typically people thought that no publisher would have the stomach for, as you say, you know, renting warehouse spaces, spaces handling fulfillment. But um, there are publishers doing it. I mean, Hearst um, has over the last couple of years launched a couple different consumer products. Mm-hmm. Um, they've launched a yoga mat, they've launched a bunch of exercise gear. Um, that's something that they're gonna continue doing. They have sort of the infrastructure necessary to do that, that, which they acquired when they bought Rodale a couple of years ago, but um, I think you're gonna to start to see more people start to do this complex at the very end of the year, launch the shop. Um, that's built kind of with uh, a third party in the middle, helping out a little bit, but they they plan to do quarterly. You mean drops. like with like fulfillment and, and that's right, money. yeah. Okay. But they're trying. their they have a, their plan is to have monthly, you know, drops of, of co branded, co created merchandise. Right. Um,
0: so, I mean, this is uh, this is an area that is very attractive in a lot of lifestyle areas, right? And we see it in food, um, probably first and foremost, but um, complex and what heist and Biety are doing mm-hmm. um, with basically streetwear. Mm-hmm. Um, but news. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is a story. It seems to me that of diversification away from ad reliance, and um, everyone's landed on subs.
3: Everybody has landed on subs.
0: Not only subs, I should say. You know, there's a lot of events and other incremental things, but subs are the. Um, I mean, recurring revenue is is
3: wonderful. It's a it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the thing about uh, subs is that it's it's. We're going to see, I think, in next year, uh, we're going to find out just how valuable some of these these subs are to uh, to the people that are acquiring them. The During Black Friday, you saw a lot of publishers roll out very, very steep discount offers. Yeah, uh, $20 a year. Do you know how many? I mean, let's just say... Tribune Publishing offers six months for a dollar.
0: Yeah, so there's always going to be, like, offers, I guess, to get people in mm-hmm. the door. I think the the thing that... That we need to be tracking is, mm-hmm. you know, there's offers that you do, like you know, try a month for a dollar and stuff, and you just really want to get someone's credit card that you'll be able to hit um, after that. But um, there is some pretty aggressive regular discounting going on um, that is not like a one-time thing.
3: Well, what's interesting about all of this is that I think, like, no, I feel like
0: nobody pays the list price. Like,
3: <laughs> I why would you? I mean, that's that's true in, in most things, though, right? I mean, like. But there's always a sale at Banana Republic.
0: Yeah, and those businesses are classic metal businesses that are getting crushed. Um, and so yes. what I wonder is whether we're going to see the same thing when it comes to news publishers. Everyone, um, you know, when when they do this slide, you know, they, they talk mm-hmm. about the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and some more B2B-type publishers rather like, like Wall Street Journal and FT and stuff. But there's a giant swath Mm-hmm. of middling um, publishers.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And that you even looking at something like the Los Angeles Times, which I think came out pretty far behind where they were expecting this year with uh, subscriber targets. And I think what you're seeing, and this is true whether you're a news publication or a more B2B-focused publication, you have to be producing something that people genuinely want. It, it's not an accident that a lot of publishers are sort of leaning into in uh, the messaging around subscriptions, not even, not necessarily leaning into buy this because it helps you do your job better or makes your life better in some way, but you know, do it for democracy, <laughs> which is doesn't augur well, I don't think necessarily. Yeah,
0: I mean, it'll work for for some, probably not for for all. I mean, I think you know, we saw the Trump bump and stuff, and we're seeing mm-hmm. people, you know, are doing that, like, hey, support our our coverage of Afghanistan, and I don't know, BuzzFeed, I guess, is trying its. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's it's almost like a donations program.
3: Well, I think what's interesting, to your point, that we're going to start seeing a lot more publishers lean into almost what you would think of as, like, this mix between philanthropy and kind of cause-based reporting. The Guardian does a lot of this, where they say, we want to write about climate change. Help us raise $150,000. But the New York Times hired somebody away from the Seattle Times to build a program like this. McClatchy is doing it. Uh, The Seattle Times has kind of a head start on it. I think that you're going to start seeing, um, as publishers get better at slicing and dicing their audience and finding pockets of coverage, um, they're going to maybe start leaning into that as a way to gather direct reader revenue, where it's not just subscribe to Newspaper X full stop, it's support our continuing coverage of insert, you know, issue here, whether it's education or, you know, some kind of local right. bell Um.
0: Final thing is the cultural adjustment that this takes, um, that mm-hmm. this necessitates at a lot of publishers. A lot of publishers, truth be told, were not very customer focused. Mm-hmm. by that, I mean audience focused. The audience was um, a commodity to sell to customers. It was not um, mm-hmm. the actual end customer. Um, I think this is an underappreciated dynamic um, that, is um, a challenge and an important one for publishers to overcome.
3: Oh, it's pro- it's profound. I, to your point about you know that business dynamic that creates a uh, kind of pecking order internally that is going to have to change probably at lots of places. If you know if your job is to amass a giant audience and then you know make most of your money by selling ads, that probably means that the most important or one of the the most important person in the business is the head of ad sales or the chief revenue officer. If all of a sudden you switch to a consumer-facing mindset and all of a sudden the most important thing is building a tight funnel and, you know, relentlessly uh, refining your picture of who your customer is and what they want, all of a sudden a different person is more important and their priorities take center stage. Their, you know, asks for investment get more important. And, um, you know, that, that, affects people's egos, it affects business strategy. And um, and this is also, I think, even for publishers like the New York Times or others that have kind of been faster to this, this is something that's in the very earliest stages. And we're going to see all, a lot of stories uh, unfold in the coming year dealing with that problem.
0: Okay. So give me a bold call for 2020.
3: Oh, wow. About the one company or about the whole? Not about the Knicks. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to try to keep it positive here. Bold call, I think that you're going to start to see publishers emerge um, where they, they sort of launch with um, commerce as their, their like prime area of revenue. Like That's the, the main way that they make their money. They're going to really act like D2C brands like we were discussing earlier. Okay, cool. Thanks, Max. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for listening to this year's final episode. This is our 62nd episode of the year. We've had 65 guests over the last 12 months. um, And I want to thank all of them for taking the time to come on here and share their thoughts. Uh, But most of all, I want to thank all of you for listening. I always love hearing from listeners. Um, Email me, I'm Brian at Digiday, or tweet me, I'm at BMRC on Twitter. And also, uh, love to connect with um, listeners on LinkedIn, of all places. Um, Make of that what you will. Enjoy your holidays. We'll be back after the break in the new year with a bunch of new episodes.